we were experimenters with how to connect our concerns about social justice and the good in the world that needs to be done with the work that we were charged to do in whatever whatever capacity it happened to be as faculty or, <clears throat> or staff at various institutions. And then when we came together and began to become self-conscious that maybe it could have a name, that got the whole field development started. I'm Emily Shields. I'm Andrew Seligson. And I'm Marisol Morales, and you're listening to Compact Nation Podcast. How's everyone doing today? You know, I am actually doing awesome. Are you? Why yes. are you doing awesome? Um, I know lots of things. I like this time of year. I'm excited for the break. And I had a practice. I have a practice I started last year of during this week before the holidays, sending a bunch of emails to people I work with um, about why I appreciate them. Nice. Uh, but getting really suspicious. Okay. Getting really specific <laughs> about it. Um, so doing that for our whole team in the office and then other folks. So look for uh, look in an inbox near you, gang. Um, and it's so fun and it makes me feel so good. And it is just the absolute best nice. thing to do at this time of year or any time. That's true. Those uh, little tokens of appreciation. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm good. We had colossal snowflakes falling from the sky here in Boston earlier today, which I enjoyed. And it was the perfect kind of snow because uh, got a little bit of a dusting. It looks pretty out there, but it's not interfering with uh, living our lives. At least it wasn't this morning. I got in very smoothly, which one doesn't always count on on a snowy day in Boston. Did you take the train or did you try to bike? I took the train. I have not yet developed the courage to start biking in the snow. <laughs> I, uh, there are others who do, and they impress me, but uh, I'm not quite there yet. So I ride home in the dark, like I've gotten over the uh, the barriers, that, the psychological barriers, and the equipment barriers that prevented me from doing that. But the snow, I'm not quite there yet. Yes, I have not gone driving with uh, riding bikes with cars, so I don't like riding in the city unless it's like on a path or something like that. Yeah, it's a it's an acquired taste and it's like a skill set. Not for me. Yeah. Yeah. No. And there's I don't encourage anybody to do it because if you don't feel comfortable doing it, because a lot of it. Have I already talked about this on this podcast? I've become very interested in this topic. Uh, a lot of it it's, is it's just It's now a transportation right. podcast. Yeah. This is, not, we this are, is no I, longer about community engagement. Right, it's no, all I, about transportation. I'm actually planning to hijack a little bit later on for some urban planning issues. Uh, but, but yeah, the thing about riding in the city is it's like a lot of other things in life that mostly it's about confidence because you're safest when you put yourself where people can see you. But that yeah. sometimes means putting yourself right in the middle of things, which doesn't 
it's not intuitive that that would be safe, but it's the safest way to be. Again, having yeah. all the lights on you and the reflective stuff and a helmet and not doing crazy things. But so if you don't feel comfortable doing that, really, nobody should like browbeat you into it. You should use other forms of transportation. Yeah, that's what forest preserves are for. That's where I'll go right. That's good. That's good. Wow. And I'm doing well. Just got back from a really great retreat at uh, this place called 1440 Multiversity up in Scotts Valley, California. Um, it was a service week that they have for nonprofits. And so went with uh, some compact colleagues um, and Nadine Cruz and uh, just had a really great time connecting, uh, participating in workshops and getting some work done for the compact. So, ha- but happy to be back. This is... Uh, I'm finally home for a while, and so it feels good to be back in my house. That's yeah, awesome. Marisol has been on the road for the compact quite a quite a good deal this this fall. Yes, yeah. yes. So hoping to stay rooted and planted for a while. It's good. So I think we've got a few things to share with our uh, podcast listeners. Uh, Andrew, you want to uh, plug some of the upcoming deadlines and compact stuff? Sure. Uh, let's see. One deadline. January 7th is the deadline for submitting for the Impact Awards. We've mentioned them before. We have new awards celebrating community engagement practitioners as well as institutions, two-year and four-year information available at compact.org. Uh, so please jump in and, and nominate folks and institutions worthy of uh, recognition. Uh, in that vein, also, the window is open for nominating students for the Newman Civic Fellowship. Uh, you recently heard from some of our great fellows from the current crop. And uh, if you have students who are emerging student civic leaders doing great things on your campus, in your community, uh, encourage your president or chancellor to nominate such a student and, uh, and help them do it. So, again, you can find information on our website about that. And those are due February 3rd. February 3rd. That's great. Great. Yes, exactly. So you have a good good bit of lead time, but it's good to get started uh, now. Some campuses run formal processes, some, uh, depending on scale, it's the kind of thing where folks know each other and do it in a face-to-face way. So whatever works for your institution, we're all for it. And what we love is when you send great students so that they can engage with each other, learn, connect, and we love to meet them as well. And uh, this is the time of year, the holiday season, when people reflect on their lives. Some, uh, you know, have many things to be grateful about. Some people realize they want a new job. And if you're one of those people, uh, you can head to compact.org slash jobs. And in general, that's a great resource. It happens right now that you'll find a couple of exciting positions. One, working on our national VISTA program. Which will be based in Chicago, this position. Based in Chicago, uh, proximate to one of our hosts. Uh, And there's another position working with another of our hosts uh, in Minnesota. So uh, check that out. That's a great resource. And if your institution or organization ever has a position, uh, you can also share jobs through our jobs board, compact.org slash jobs. That's all I have, I think. Thanks. Emily, any announcements? That's great. No, like, yeah, Andrew just plugged it. We're hiring in Minnesota for a great position. So check out that jobs board. Awesome. Thanks. So um, 
Up next, uh, our listeners have an opportunity to hear an interview that I did with the fabulous Nadine Cruz, who's been such a leader in our work and um, has been a great mentor to me and our new uh, community engagement uh, professionals or practitioner award is named after her. So um, got a chance to sit down with her while we were at 1440 Multiversity and talk a little bit about mentorship um, and her views and uh, sharing uh, from the field. So uh, let's listen to that. Cruz, how are you? Good morning. Good morning. We are here together at uh, 1440 Multiversity in Scottsdale, California, and I or Scotts Valley, Scotts Valley, California. Um, and I have the pleasure of interviewing interviewing you today. Um, so we've known each other for come on five years, maybe five or more. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you have been such a great and wonderful mentor to me and um, beautiful spirit in my life. So I'm really excited about being able to share this conversation between the two of us with our uh, Compact Nation audience. Um, And so I just wanted to start off um, by asking you um, kind of how did you get into this um, work, to this field of community engagement and um, I think of you for, for me, um, as like an elder in the field that has helped, uh, pave the way. Um, but who helped pave the way for, for you? So there was no paving the way because there was no such field, at least identified as such. And so I think as part of the court who, later on began to be identified with a field that's identifiable by many names, we got thought of as having paved the way, but actually we didn't pave the way really to a field as much as we ex- we were experimenters with how to connect our concerns about social justice and the good in the world that needs to be done with the work that we were charged to do in whatever whatever capacity it happened to be as faculty or, <clears throat> or staff at various institutions. And then when we came together and began to become self-conscious that maybe it could have a name, that got the whole field development started, but it certainly wasn't intentional, I don't think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, like, as you've seen your career and the development of this field from sort of the seeds into kind of what it is now, what role do you think mentorship has um, in this Ah, field? I appreciate that you say that I've mentored you, but I feel a little bit sheepish about it because I don't feel like I am doing the duties of what I would think of as mentor of guiding and perhaps helping to make the way for younger cohort people to achieve their goals. Uh, Mostly, I feel that what I do is to 
recognize and pay attention and be present present to people who want me to be present in their lives. And so I don't think of it as I have some role to guide as much as to bear witness mm. to the becoming of human beings who happen to be becoming in the context of a shared work that we have many names for now, but among which is civic engagement or civic education. And so I feel like it's a very, it's very much a mutuality of finding resonance in each other. Mm. And so I happen to have been around longer. And so I think it then kind of falls into the stereotype that I'm the mentor because I'm older or that I know more because I have had many more years, but I see it more as I bear witness to their fewer, fewer years of struggle and challenge, but it's reciprocal because they are also noting and identifying and bearing witness to what I have experienced. And I get to reflect on those experiences and I get to have an audience to, <laughs> to hear me. So I sort of feel like, well, let's not call it mentorship. Let's call it like, I don't know, intergenerational friendship yeah. in the work mm. and mutual support. Absolutely. So you talked a little bit about um, becoming and mutuality. Can you say a little bit more about like what that means for you and where um, where you have experienced that um, with folks in the field or outside of the, the field? Like what does becoming mean to you? I, I think of it and I think Michelle Obama's book and mm-hmm. right, but as this process. But for you, what, what has it looked like? Mm-hmm. I think of it as the challenge of the intersections between what is more comfortable and familiar to me, which is uh, social justice movement work addressing systemic and structural issues and the connection with my own internal, more private struggles as a human being. And I think it's an illusion that just because I declare that I'm passionate for social justice and that I want to connect our civic education and service learning work with that kind of uh, concern and that, and the social movements that do exist and to be allies to that as an educator, that that is an automatic answer to my internal struggles. Mm. And so I've noticed now that I'm 71 years old that there's a lot that I struggled with about those external things, including battles that I feel I've had in various institutions when I think there are injustices within, that a lot of it also has to do with my maturity or lack thereof, and a lot of my imperfections and flaws that Back then, I don't think I had the capacity to admit or embrace because I felt too vulnerable. Mm. And so it's that process of becoming that includes becoming comfortable with the flaws and imperfections 
and accepting it while also knowing that I do some good and I do things that do benefit Mm -hmm. some other people. I'm not a complete flop, you know? Uh, Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, but the becoming is the acceptance of that. Mm. And it takes a long time. I just wish it didn't take so long for me anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like probably a more recent, we've sort of, heard more about like healing and mindfulness uh, in this engagement work or in higher ed. Um, What are your feelings about that? And how do you think it fits or doesn't within um, what we call community engagement in higher ed? Mm. I have mixed feelings about it because I fear often that these are trends that become fashionable and being mindful and mindfulness becomes a prescriptive mechanical formula that people go through the gestures of it and, or worse, appropriates practices that have had its antecedents in other cultures and, and societies And we take the surface level of it and say, oh, I'm mindful and I do this mindfully. But I think the deeper elements or dimensions of these practices require a self-awareness and what we call in social science reflexivity Mm -hmm. about our practices such that I don't think it's possible simply to be mindful, for example, and not be fully aware of the historical background of settler colonialism, for example, and its connections to a phrase like pioneer Mm. or uh, service, for example. So I would have doubts about mindfulness if it were not also accompanied by a social awareness of, of these historical complexities in which our practices are embedded. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a, a lot of um, sense in thinking like you can't have the sweet without the sour. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Or you can't do a deep, you need to do a deep dive in order to have the full embracing of the practice. Yeah, I think that. On the other hand, I certainly would encourage that kind of interior examination because after all in the end this these practices and these hopes and aspirations that we have in higher education in the end are carried out by individuals Mm. and each of us as individuals are challenged with so much baggage and toxicity and many violations that some people call, you know, a thousand cuts Mm -hmm. that in order to be healthy and capable of doing the work in healthy ways, not self-destructive ways or in angry, completely angry all the time kind of ways, we do need to cultivate that internal and interior strength, which is so hard to do, especially since we don't have a common practice, we don't have a practice in, in common that we could share and say, 
oh, let's all do, and then name, give it a name. Um, because we, we also don't want to have like a religious prescription. We're not all Zen Buddhists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the Catholic workers movement is, is one possible. There are many different threads of possible ways by which we cultivate our interior self along with the, the work that we do, but we don't have a common one. So maybe mindfulness is the most common because it's not, it does, it's not attached to a doctrine and religion and so forth. It's not, and it's not bad either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It helps reduce our blood pressure. <laughs> if nothing else, well, we need to learn how to breathe, for example. Yeah. And as a stepping stone to maybe a greater, um, or more collective uh, practice. Yes. And since we, we do advocate for the, the skill of navigating difficult conversations, for example, we talk about civility and so forth. And a lot of that, I think, can't be done as easily. I'm not saying it's easy, but it can be done more easily if actually we learned how to breathe mm-hmm. through it instead of a fight, flight, freeze kind of response. Because mm-hmm. those conversations include so many triggers that you think at least at our neurological system can get to a place through breathing. And that's not a bad thing. Right. We do need to learn how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so reflection is a big piece of this work. Um, how have you, uh, worked on reflection, both like internally in this work and and how you frame it and then um, with yourself? Yeah, I think I've changed a lot on how I do reflection. It used to be I thought of reflection as primarily looking back at a set of experiences and attaching them to various theories, explanatory theories that can inform my understanding about those things that I experienced. Let's say having done some immersion with students in, let's say, a part of L.A. called Skid Row Mm -hmm. and uh, doing reflections with students on various theories of homelessness and uh, the debates about the place of mental illness versus income, uh, low income or poverty and so forth. I thought of that as reflection and I thought of that as the discipline that we need to have in order for it to be academic, full of academic integrity. Mm -hmm. But today I've really deviated from that. I think truly now I accept what I've been calling trans epistemic, that it A fuller reflection requires more than what we identify in the Western European academic tradition as thinking reflexively on our experiences and our awareness of the world. That includes sitting quietly and coming to what I would call a blank mind. So to get to a place that I'm called that others have called the beginner's mind. Mm -hmm. And I've been practicing that a lot more. And I don't know if it's partly because it's age. I'm not sure. 
but I feel a greater confidence in not anchoring everything in known traditions of scholarship and more into what if I practiced breathing and meditation such that my mind and heart and self are fully open to whatever insights those experiences might bring. And I have discovered that I have many more discoveries Hmm. when I do it that way. And it goes back to, and now I feel more friendly towards some of the practices I had when I was actively teaching. So I would have students say something like, if I call out something, just call out a response. And I would say, color, temperature, sound. And they would call out what, whatever came to mind. And looking back now, I think I was more on the right track then mm. because I had that first, that process first before we went into, well, of the five theories of poverty that we have read, you know, which right. ones resonate for you in these experiences. So I think I'm, I'm sort of feeling like, oh, you know, I knew something back then. I should have stuck with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just makes me think of like sort of the different ways of knowing and yes, how to introduce yes. that space. And if this. I if I had it to do over again, I would definitely have collaborated with an artist mm. who would have used primarily nonverbal yeah. kinds of visuals and uh, you know sounds, making music, all those kinds of things. I would have a lot of fun today if I do that. Maybe I should do that. <laughs> There's still time. There's yeah. Still time. Well, I could do that with professionals, you know, yeah. the workshops, collaborating with artists. Yes. I think that would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it taps into, right, those different sides of, of ourselves. Yes. Um, definitely. So, um, as you know, uh, Campus Compact has an award that we have named after you, uh, the Community Engagement Professional Award. Um, so, what does it feel like to have an award named after you? Well, I, <laughs> of course I feel honored. Uh, I feel a little self-conscious about uh, what that should mean. But when I think about what that celebrates, even though I know that those who care about me and love me, they have expressed that they wish for me to accept being celebrated. Mm -hmm. I see it more as a shared celebration of the challenges in the work and recognizing those who have become known as people who have accepted and fully embraced the complexity and difficulties in doing the work and the challenge, and that if we can hold them up uh, up to the light, then we can celebrate in more complex ways the those who have risen to the challenge. Mm. And what I mean by more complex ways is rather than celebrating like they have accomplished once and for all some summit 
uh, of of their work, the way I've read the uh, the re- the eligibility requirements and the criteria for selection, it seems to me that invariably it will end up recognizing those who have done the most difficult parts of the work. Because after all, community engagement is very difficult translation and bridge work across many different kinds of expectations, academic cultures and cultures that we say are different in communities that don't abide by academic rules. And to find uh, the common ground enough so that people have the motivation to collaborate, that's really difficult work. And to make that stick and to do it with integrity when not all parties may be in agreement as to what that is, Mm -hmm. that's really tough work. So I'm glad that there's a way to honor those people. And I hope that I'm looking forward to meeting who they are. (laughs) We're looking forward to giving it. I think, you know, for us, when we were thinking about ways to, to honor really the folks who are on the ground pushing this agenda and um, creating that space within these institutions for relationship with community, um, you know, the work that you've done um, and the, the path that I think many of us believe that you helped to, to, to pave and, and create, um, you just stood out for us. And so uh, it's our honor to be able to to have that award named after you and for you um, to accept. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I accept as I have not, I haven't rolled over dead yet in this work. And I hope that um, I can continue to be able to make my voice heard on the harder parts of this work, which as you know, have a lot to do with the, structural systemic distinctions that we make based on race, class, sexual identity, all those things that are becoming rigid, Mm -hmm. even more so, which cries out even more today than ever before for the need to do this work. Right. Right. How we create this civility in a in a place where the f- mending the fabric of humanity is harder because it is actively being torn asunder, mm. that is hard work. And so any way that we can elevate the work by recognizing the work of people and who they are, I think is a great w- way. Thanks. Yes. Nothing thank you. Thank you. Um, I think, you know, it's based on love, right? Yeah. (laughs) And uh, not love in the mushy sense, but in the hard ways that you stick around and and feel committed to to making that that change and and believing in people, right? Um, Having that hope. So, yes, the belief in people with love includes hanging on to the aspiration that even those who oppose us and whom I may oppose based on positions 
and stances that we are capable of being in a society together with civility Mm. and a desire to have the common good for all. And that concept and practice by themselves are are being diminished. Mm. And it's as if our work is almost starting from the beginning again, where we can't even presume to accept that everybody has a shared goal of that common civility. Wow, I never thought we would be in that place. I thought it was like, oh, now that we have this much, let's keep going so that we have greater development and deeper quality of citizenship and civility, but that isn't even the case. So I think we need to step it up Mm -hmm. and be ever more vigilant for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Nadine, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation and sharing your thoughts with the Compact Nation. Um, It's always good to have you on the podcast and you're always welcome. Um, And thanks. Thank you, Marisol. (laughs) Much love to you. So now we're back. I hope you all enjoyed the um, interview that I had with uh, Nadine Cruz and uh, take advantage of listening to her um, words of wisdom. Uh, Now it's our opportunity to talk about what sparks joy for us. Uh, Emily? Well, what what sparked joy for me recently was this weekend we took our kids to see Frozen 2, which... Let me just plug this as an adult movie because that is what I believe it is. It has so much humor that is meant for an adult audience that is really wonderful and it was so enjoyable. It is also about colonization and reconciliation and really? oh yes, and they are there are very interesting themes handled in a very interesting way that from some of the reading that I did, I think they did pretty intentionally and um, with those voices. So uh, yeah, Frozen 2, you don't need a kid to go see it. (laughs) My uh, dad went with my nephews and my sister and they said they enjoyed it, but they didn't get that perspective. So all right, check out Frozen 2. Andrew, how about you? What sparks joy for you? What's sparking joy for you? Well, I've, I've been accused uh, of being nerdy and wonky at times in my life, and I'm, I'm going to disprove that right now because what uh, sparks joy for me is a public policy. So that's obviously <laughs> right there. Uh, yeah, the, the city of Somerville, one of our neighbors here in the Boston region, so some of you are familiar with it as a small city right next to Cambridge. But if you looked at it from the sky, it all looks like one big city, Boston, Cambridge, Somerville, Brookline. They're not really distinct from each other. It's very much part of the urban core. And they just uh, adjusted their building codes so that they have eliminated parking requirements for new buildings and they have established parking maximums for new buildings. So most cities in the United States when you build a new building, you have to build parking with it. So even though we all know that 
uh, we're all going quickly into the ocean unless we create cities that are more dense with more people walking, fewer people driving, more people taking public transit. We still in many, many cities have these old codes that were created in a car-centered universe that require people to create parking with buildings. It turns out that fewer and fewer of those spaces are even getting used now. So there were surveys in the Boston area, enormous numbers of uh, these spaces not getting used because fewer and fewer people own cars in cities or they just own one. But that means we have more paved space that makes all kinds of runoff, flooding, water pollution problems worse. So uh, Somerville just said, we're just not doing it anymore. And we're capping the maximum. So you cannot entice people to buy you know, a unit in your new condo or whatever by giving them three parking spaces or something. And so they are uh, pushing a public policy that makes us more dense, that takes uh, advantage of the opportunities created for livability and whatever through walkability and more things close together and whatever. And I just feel like at a moment where we're all so pessimistic about anything positive happening at the federal level in particular, whatever our views are because of the deep gridlock and conflict, whatever, at the local level, we do see opportunities for people to agitate. This is how this story happened, of people getting organized to pressure for a different kind of city and rules that would help make that real. And uh, locally responsive legislatures, when people got together and voted for people who would support those policies. And then those are the kinds of things that help create models that other municipalities can uh, can follow. And uh, that's that I think is our our pathway forward. So it's exciting to see a neighbor of ours uh, hopefully putting some pressure on Boston as well uh, to get with the program. Nice. Well, nerdy as it may be, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> Proven correct. Now, um. if we, now, if I could live in a community that simply has sidewalks everywhere, that would be great. So not not everywhere is caught up to these trends. Although d- downtown Des Moines, right, uh, is a downtown very Downtown Des Moines has a lot of good things going on. It has not necessarily extended to uh, neighborhoods. Um we are pretty close to the city, and yet, yeah, no just, sidewalks. Uh, no, our street has no sidewalks, and um, the major street right off our street also has no sidewalks. That is so weird to me. Yeah, it's really strange, and the pe- but people don't want them either. It's a it's a thing. When I was uh, buying my house in San Bernardino, there was uh, in California there was one house I looked at, and it, that. It didn't have sidewalks, and it was just too weird for me to think about living someplace that didn't have sidewalks, so I found a house that did have sidewalks. So I knew that was a requirement for a house purchase, but yes. It's tough. Uh, We get out and about often anyway, but it is not a place where you can really, like, commute anywhere. I mean, you can, obviously, but it's not set up for that. Well, for me, what sparks joy, I think a lot of folks know that I am sci-fi is that a sci-fi noise in the background um it sounds I know, like it's, it's, I don't know like, it just is. as you said that there was an alien spacecraft landing <laughs> yeah, in that's the exactly kitchen. what it sounded like good sound effects uh so there are two things one with sci-fi and one with music uh but the sci-fi one is that i uh just watched uh the watchmen i don't know if you guys have seen that on hbo but it's with regina king and um 
It's all about uh, these uh, masked heroes fighting white supremacy, and it's awesome. So if you haven't seen it, watch the first season. Um, the final episode just came out, I think, yesterday, the day before. Um, and she is badass and amazing. Um, so Watchmen, it's a H- HBO. And then my second Sparks Joy was I was just in Seattle meeting with folks from our Seattle Partnership uh, team who are helping us with the community tours for the um, upcoming conference uh, in March in Seattle. And I had the opportunity to go- Compact 20. Compact 20, yep. Check it out on our website. You still have time to register. Uh, and I had the chance to go to the Northwest African American Museum So on Sunday. So when I just got there, I saw some folks because it's in this park um, who were uh, playing and dancing bomba, which is uh, like folkloric, traditional Afro-Puerto Rican uh, music with drums and everything. And so I went up to them and they were a group of Puerto Ricans in Seattle who had this bomba group. And so talked to them for a little while, went into the museum, which was fabulous, and then came out and had a chance to dance with them in the cold. Uh, in this little park so it was great and I was like we are everywhere and I apparently found out there's like a Puerto Rican restaurant in Seattle so I'm gonna go check it out when we're out there for the conference in March that's awesome and by the way we are into this season of the man in the high castle now so Ooh, yeah I'll keep you posted all right I have not started I still yet. think there it's weird no but it's also good on this podcast okay yes but it's good it's good so I think that's it for our Sparks Joy. We hope that um, this season of giving and reflection sparks joy as we enter the new uh, year, the new decade, um, and that we continue to build uh, communities based on uh, relationships, uh, trust, and uh, mutual respect for one another moving forward. Here, here. Well, that's it from us at Compact Nation Podcast. Thanks for listening. And as always, don't forget to rate and review our show. If you have any questions or suggestions, email us at podcast uh, at compact.org or chime in on social media with the hashtag, hashtag CompactNationPod. Um, and you can uh, continue to look for us in the upcoming year, 2020. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye. Bye. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in the Leather District of Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Altiorem Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. You can find more of his music at andrewsavage.net. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening. I am the podcat.